Hello and welcome to the Voices of Awareness podcast. We're listening to the pioneers of authentic cultural change. We're listening to a personal injury and human rights lawyer at the top of his field, Richard Scorer from Slater and Gordon. He's represented hundreds of victims of abuse in schools, churches, youth clubs, hospitals, the military and overseas. Two months ago, we did the very first Voices of Awareness podcast together. He's also the author of the seminal, evidential book, Betrayed, The Sex Abuse Crisis in the Roman Catholic Church. And he's trying, alongside many others, to achieve changes in the law so that past failings are not repeated. Past failings are constantly being repeated. We are losing the war against the child sexual abuse epidemic. In the first month of lockdown last year, 9 million attempts to watch videos or live filming of child sexual abuse online were made in the UK. Makes you wonder what they'll be doing now that they're allowed out of the house. National Crime Agency says there's 300,000 people who currently pose a sexual threat to children online in the UK. That's not just a few rotten apples. Two-thirds of girls aged 13 to 21 said they've been sexually harassed at school in 2016. That's most girls, and that's four years ago. And yet, 98% of rape cases do not result in a prosecution. So the criminal justice process evidently offers no deterrent to rapists and no justice for rape victims. So there's little wonder that at a rate of a thousand disclosures a day, a body of evidence is being collected about a rape culture in schools that two weeks ago no one was even talking about. Richard, why is Everyone's Invited.UK so important right now? Well, the situation certainly in, in the UK is, is pretty dire, as you say. And it, it's such a contrast in some ways with, with the situation... 10 years ago, when we seemed to be making real progress, we had the Savile scandal and various other revelations at that time. And that created a real impetus to try to uh, prosecute and deal with sexual crime. And the CPS seemed determined to prosecute cases and we seem to be moving in the right direction. I think tragically, we've lost some of that momentum. And as you described, things have gone backwards a bit. I suppose what that reminds us is that these battles are never won. We have to keep fighting these battles. And the way that ultimately that that happens is by victims and survivors coming forward and telling their stories and having the courage to disclose what happened. And everyone's invited, of course, is where some of those accounts of school rape culture are now being collated. And it's a 
fantastic initiative and I'm glad that it's happening. But it's so important because it reminds us of what's really going on and what we still need to do to address it. I mean, it's, it's hard not to look at all of this and just conclude that, you know, we've got a really toxic sexual culture in this country, haven't we? That was Krishna Guru Murphy's question for former Home Secretary Sajid Javid, who deflected. So let me ask you, do we have a really toxic sexual culture in the UK, or is that an understatement? Well, we definitely have a toxic sexual culture. When you look at the prevalence of pornography on the internet and that kind of thing, what we also have is a a culture where a political culture where uh, you know, politicians um, rhetorically will, will condemn child sexual abuse but in, in reality when it comes to action um, that action is often sorely lacking so you know they talk up the issue but actually doing anything about it that's that's different and the, the contrast I, I see I mean it's, it's brought home when you you go to the issue of manager reporting and you, um, you, you know, you, the fact that we don't have a mandatory reporting law in relation to child sexual abuse, mm. because we do have mandatory reporting laws in relation to some other things. Uh, we, we have mandatory reporting laws in relation to money laundering. Um, if I, as a solicitor, have the slightest suspicion, and I mean the slightest suspicion, that a client might be involved in money laundering, then I, I have a legal duty to report it. And I can go to prison if I don't. And politicians were determined to bring that in, but the the but we and we need a similar law in relation to child sexual abuse. It's obvious that we do, and it's it's actually more important because children's lives and the protection of children is more important than money. Uh, but politicians haven't done that, um, and I think that shows the um, the different priorities uh, that legislators have. Yeah. Get your skates on, mate. Get your skates on, mate. No beer around your great repaint today. Hey, drop your plates of meat. Right upon the seat. This is the South Preservation Society. This is the South Preservation Society. Javid's report on the wider implications of child sexual abuse highlights the fact that today a convicted sexual abuser can change their name by deed poll and then apply to work with children without the truth of their offending history tainting their chances. When you put that alongside the fact that teachers have no legal obligation to report child sexual abuse, and that 98% of rapists aren't prosecuted, it seems we live in a society that is institutionally sex offender friendly. Does the general public even know about that? Well, I think your description is accurate, and you've given three very good examples of it. Um, the general public, in my experience, are absolutely astonished when they learn about these things. Mm. I think you went out into the street and you said, you know, could, could a teacher know about the rape of a child and not report it? Would that be lawful? And pe people would, would universally say, no, of course it wouldn't be lawful, but it is. Right. Um, the... Uh, the, 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 the laws in relation to sex offenders changing their names, again, people just wouldn't imagine that that kind of loophole would exist. And if you said to people, 
do you know that 98% of rapes are never prosecuted? I think many members of the general public would find that difficult to believe as well. Uh, but these are the realities. This is this is the UK in 2021. Mm. Uh, you know, after we've been talking about um, these issues very publicly for you know a decade or more. Mm. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to describe this country as institutionally sex offender friendly, unfortunately. And I'm not one to exaggerate, but I I I, I think that's a fair description, unfortunately. Whew. Let's keep going. The rape culture issue was brought to the government's attention four years ago. Jess Phillips says mostly they've done nothing about it, although some results were achieved after a 13-year-old girl who was raped and then put in the same classroom as the perpetrator of that sexual crime sued the Secretary of State. Is that the answer then? Should 98% of rape victims sue the government? And does the government have the capacity to process that quantity of legal cases? Well, if only that was the answer, and if only there was a a route like that to, to dealing with the problem... Centre for Women's Justice, which is a fantastic organisation which fights for the rights of women and girls who've been uh, the victims of sexual crimes, recently tried to bring a judicial review, not, I suppose not against the government, but against the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, it tried to challenge uh, the Crown Prosecution Service failings um, around rape prosecutions in court, and unfortunately the the case was unsuccessful. Um, the judges um, were not prepared to second guess the approach of the of the CPS, um, even though it is demonstrably flawed, and even though it's it's led to a situation where the, the rate of prosecution of rape is so low that the the, the crime has effectively been decriminalised. I mean, if you don't prosecute something to that extent, then you're you're effectively simply allowing it to happen. What would be the next advancement that would that, that would even look like something more like justice? You know, politicians can do a number of things if they really want to. They can make decisions. They can make decisions to put more money into this, which is desperately needed, and they can make decisions to reframe the criteria and the codes which um, prosecutors and others are using um, in, these, in these situations. Everyone's Invited has put a cat among the pigeons. It's prompted Mel Larimore from the police to notice that their Safer Schools network doesn't reach independent schools. Well done. Ofsted are now going to do surprise inspections at independent schools. Obviously, as Jacob Rees-Mogg reminds us, all of Amplethorpe's problems are all in the past. 
So presumably Ampleforth is exemplary in their handling of peer-to-peer sexual abuse today, and that has nothing to do with the reason that the school can't pass its safeguarding inspections, right? Well, I, I detect a, a degree of sarcasm in your question. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I mean, Ampleforth illustrates uh, the, the the current problem that's come to light around peer-on-peer abuse, but it also illustrates another issue, which is that Ofsted have actually not been particularly effective. And even though they haven't been effective, Ampleforth is still failing their exams. Yeah, that, that, that's right. That's right, because when Ofsted went in in February, uh, they they discovered problems that had, in fact, uh, been been unearthed by another agency, not by Ofsted. Um, and when we had the uh, hearings at the inquiry last year in relation to residential schools, we saw a lot of cases where, uh, you know, Ofsted had another inspectorate had had gone into schools and given glowing reports um, when in fact serious uh, abuse scandals were were going on in those schools at the very time that those glowing reports appeared self-preservation society this is the self-preservation society There was a failure to report uh, particular um, concerns or allegations. And from what's been said in the media and Ampleforth haven't contradicted this, those seem to relate to peer-on-peer abuse. Let's look at the two sides of this mandatory reporting issue. Here's your colleague Kim Harrison talking after the FA investigation. Unless there is a legal responsibility placed on individuals to report to the authorities suspicions of abuse, then this is just going to continue again and again and again. It needs to be a legal responsibility. We need mandatory reporting in this country to keep children safe. Clear as crystal compared with this the last time it was discussed in Parliament. In terms of mandatory reporting, we've looked at this really, really carefully and the balance of evidence came down uh, against, but it is something very much we keep under review and I'm very happy to meet the Honourable Lady to discuss it with her. Clear as mud. She might as well have said, Computer says no. simple, effective solution that evidently protects children. 
is being shoved aside by these government officials who are supposedly meant to be representing them? Well, it's incredibly frustrating. And, you know, for, for my clients, the clock can't be rolled back. The things that have happened to them have happened to them, but they do want to see proper and effective change to ensure that future generations of children don't suffer the same fate. Mandatory reporting is, is you know, one of the key reforms that we need in order to to ensure that in the future and you, you you know you heard the minister's answer there i think the the underlying reason as as far as i can tell for politicians rejecting mandatory reporting is is fear that it will fear that it will result in more allegations, well, it, which, which of course it will. I mean, that's the whole point about mandatory reporting is you capture things that wouldn't otherwise be reported Yeah, uh, because you don't have a law requiring them to be reported. So, yes, there will be more reports. My argument has always been, and I, and I you know, strongly believe this, that, yes, you will get a spike in reports if you have a mandatory reporting law, but because of that, you will capture things that wouldn't have otherwise been captured and you will prevent future abuse. Abuse is not taken seriously. And perpetrators and men and women and boys and girls who do not challenge gateway behaviours to abuse collude in maintaining a trauma-organised society. And posh boys do get away with it. We have a member of the royal family, Prince Andrew, protected by that very system. We have a Prime Minister who said that the inquiry into child sexual abuse was money spaffed up the wall. He used a schoolboy metaphor for ejaculation to describe an inquiry into child sexual abuse. When you first heard that, what was the effect in the abuse team and amongst the survivors well it's appalling isn't it and to use that particular metaphor as well and it reflects the contempt uh, that some people in the establishment um, have for anybody who raises these sorts of issues and unfortunately so many members of the establishment seem to have gone through these these institutions where you know even if they didn't suffer sexual abuse there was you know routine routinely physical and emotional abuse um as as we now you know see in in many of the leading public schools where people in the establishment or some of them are educated and so there seems to be this kind of conspiracy of either silence around it or or or, or just you know dismissing and denigrating those who try to get the problem taken seriously and that's a that's a, that's a sort of uh, been a you know a a, a strain in, in in the way the establishment thinks about this for a long time when you listen to soma sara talking about rape culture and how uh, she describes it as a, a kind of a collective minimization of um of the realities I would have thought that this spaffing comment, I know he retracts it, would be a big finger pointing to rape culture, wouldn't it? Well, I think it is. I mean, Boris Johnson gets away with a lot of kind of um, off-colour comments like this, doesn't he? And people seem to, you know, just sort of 
treat him as as you know as a bit of a joker and it's all a bit of a joke um but obviously it's not and and i you know he went to ashdown house and then on to eton and you know in in my team at slater and gordon we've represented survivors of abuse in in both of those settings uh, and you know there were problems in those schools and there have been in many other um, institutions and politicians need to take it seriously but he could have gone to um, those schools and know nothing about it just by being in a completely different faction of um, of the you know of the subculture if you like or do you think he or do you think he's likely to have known that that was in the background I, I think it's I think it's really hard to say but yeah. you know when I when I hear descriptions um, of some of the ways that some of these institutions operated um, I find it hard to imagine that you can go to schools like that and not be you know and, and, and be completely unaware that you know there are things happening which shouldn't happen but I mean who am I to say I went to a South London comprehensive and you know so I don't know what um, these places I don't particularly know what these places are like from the inside I only know you know what people have described to me yeah um, where you know, which were, is, is institutions where where certainly there was some sexual abuse and where, but where also physical and emotional abuse is absolutely routine yeah and unnormalized in in, mm. in the same ways now Boris Johnson has since retracted that statement but when he said it I mean, he wrote it he did have a point I mean, he was making a point. What he was saying is that there's no real sense in spending money on examining historical abuse when we should be spending money safeguarding children today. What would you say to him about the importance of investigating the historic? I'd say a couple of things about that. I mean, firstly, for those who... Um, experienced um, what what is what some people call historic abuse, but of course is actually ever present for those who, who, who experienced it. For 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 those people who experienced it, you know, getting getting some proper accountability and justice around that is incredibly important for them as individuals. But the the other thing I would say is that I don't don't really agree with this sort of this kind of artificial division of thing of, of things in, into sort of historic on the one hand and current on the other. Um, because one of the things that came across very clearly from ICSA is that if you if you look at institutions and ICSA examined um, events in institutions over quite long periods, and what you see is that the, the patterns that were there in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know those 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 things haven't gone away. Um, you know, some of the same culture remains, um, even now, when attitudes to safeguarding are supposed to be very different. And so I would always argue very strongly that it is very important to examine the history because, you know, as the saying goes, those who um, forget their history are condemned to repeat it. And, you know, to give you a, 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 a contemporary example you know we've heard a lot and I wrote in my book obviously about how in the Catholic Church cases have been covered up and priests moved to different parishes and all of that stuff 
Um, that was supposed to stop in 2001 with the Nolan reforms, but then we've heard more recently about the Quigley case, where it seems that, certainly according to um, one of the one of Quigley's victims, he was strongly discouraged by the Archdiocese of Birmingham's safeguarding officer from reporting that to the police. Now that he mm. says that um, quite recently, you know, we're talking 2012 or thereabouts. Yeah. So. Um, I think that it's only by by examining and understanding some of the history that you you can understand the risks in the present. I mean, anybody who says, you know, we've got no child abuse here because, you know, nobody is saying that they were abused, nobody at the moment is saying that they were abused yeah. or have been abused in the recent past. Well, that's a completely fallacious um, assumption because, you know, as we know from multiple studies, it takes, I think, on average you know, 20 plus, you know, 22, 25 years um, for, uh, on average, for people to disclose abuse. And so the reality is that that often it happens and you're not going to know about it for, um, you know, for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, that's not true, obviously, with every disclosure, but, um, but that is a significant factor. So the idea that, um, you know, it just doesn't happen here anymore... I, I think anybody, I would anybody who sort of says that confidently, I would be really concerned about their understanding of safeguarding and their and their appreciation of of, of the way that things happen in reality. We'll be listening to Richard Scorer a lot more in part two. Society, this is the